You're listening to Freestyle Flavor. I'm your host, Chef Tarsha. Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, stay tuned for my conversation with John Renthorpe. Joining us live from New Orleans, Louisiana, we'll talk about his role as CEO and brewmaster for Cajun Fire Brewing Company. And I'll ask him, what does it take to scale, manufacture, distribute beer in Louisiana? You've got freestyle flavor. Put your listening ears on. Stay close. I'll be right back. So historically, uh, Cajun Fire is recognized as the fifth uh, Black-owned beer company in U.S. history uh, since Prohibition. Um, it's also recognized as the first uh, African-American, uh, Black-American, as well as Native American brewing company of ownership in the South. So traditionally, you know, you have hops, uh, grains like malts. Um, you also have, most importantly, yeast. But the most, uh, I guess, basic and, and foundational uh, product in water is, I mean, in beer is water. Uh, it makes up 60% of the beer. And a lot of, and a lot of times, you know, uh, we don't think about the sciences of it, but the water profile is the most significant uh, contribution you can have outside of the different ingredients. And that's like the core four. Then from that, you have a lot of different uh, styles and variation ingredients that people source from different cultures that add to uh, beer, beer being one of those most complex uh, beverages that you're likely to find on the planet. You've got freestyle flavor, a podcast cookumentary highlighting all things food. Stay posted for my conversations with cooks, educators, farmers, ranchers, and regular folks talking about the flavors we all love. We'll learn so much about where our food is coming from, recipe profiles, ingredients, and fanfare tasty fanfare stay posted our next episode is coming up now welcome to freestyle flavor john renthorpe of cajun fire brewing company how are you i'm good i'm so uh, happy that for you to have me. Thank you so much, Chef. I appreciate you uh, stopping by. You joining us from New Orleans. Tell me about the weather over there this morning. It is, uh, you know, it's February, so it's kind of up in the air. We've been having tornado warnings, if you can believe that. Uh, but right now, you know, it's just uh, kind of cool and breezy. Not too, 
Not too cold, very humid. <laughs> okay, is it is it good? Uh, is it good Super Bowl Mardi Gras weather? What what's happening on that front? It is. It's all the above. Uh, you know, Mardi Gras is gonna roll rain, sleet or shine. You know, it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna be Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras uh, don't so stop. I think I think this condition, even though it ain't favorable on mine, is perfect for uh, the festive spirit of the city. Okay, that's good. Well, you know, I'm here in Houston, so we are not far away from each other at all. And uh, we finally have a day with the sun shining uh, today. It's been a little gray and, and it's cool and we're going back and forth with all of these uh, temperatures. But, um, you know, we're going to bask in the sunshine this morning. Okay. Yeah, in West New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Let's, let, let me start at the beginning. I like to, you know, ask everyone, no matter their orientation, what is your first food memory? My uh, my first food memory, and I can only kind of recall it. My um, I had to, I had to write a uh, I had to submit a recipe proposal for uh, for Dillard University, and uh, what I reflected on my first true memory was my grandmother's okra, like smothered okra. Okay. Uh, like just a. You know, I could I can remember like the little things. You know, as a kid, you, you pick up on different receptors. So like the you know the sliminess mm-hmm. of it, the um, the way the rice was kind of you know uh, maybe cooked a little bit too long. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It, it was good. It was good. But it just I just remember all them different uh, characteristics of my grandmother's okra with uh with smoked sausage. With smoked sausage. So you know while we're talking about okra because okra comes up quite a bit on this uh, podcast uh, the sliminess of okra now I am originally from the east coast so um, you know okra uh, everybody that eats okra uh, and, and where I'm from they have of course a southern foundation um, the sliminess this is something that I can't get over uh, as a chef personally uh, do you cook yourself Oh yeah. Okay. I definitely do. <laughs> now, so, so are you making your grandmother's okra? I mean, you know, are you making that recipe? I am, but I kind of tweaked it a little bit. Like, and I, when I say slimy, I mean like the, the gravy. It was, uh, you know, it was rinsed uh, before cooking, but the gravy, you know, uh, was very thick. Yeah. Uh, little things like the little, the little uh, uh, dried uh, shrimp, shrimp. Was in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Well, and, uh, I, well I, I I still cook it, but I don't cook. I never quite match that same. <laughs> it don't hit me the same. You know? Of course, of course. But what I'm going at is, do you have a, a technique, uh, maybe in your heritage or whatnot, to uh, do something about the sliminess, or do you? Is that part of it? You love that because I know some people say, "Hey, I love that." Some people love it. I, I guess now since I've, I've grown older and I, I, I kind of went into the deep end on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one technique I use, I add a little bit of vinegar okay. uh, to the root. When I'm making it, I, I even make a roux now when mm-hmm. I add my okra. Um, I use some uh, some dried tomatoes, which acidity kind of kills a lot of that, that slime uh-huh. texture. Um, but I don't overdo it because I still think it's, you know, having it where you got that thick uh, gravy that comes from the okra being cooked down is, is somewhat desirable. Okay. All right. Well, that's part of it. So, uh, Grandma, yep. what's your grandmother's name? Uh, Annie Bruner. Annie Bruner. Annie Parsons. 
Bruner. Yeah. Okay, Annie Parson Bruner. We we we're talking about your okra on freestyle flavor, and we shouting out to you. Period. All right, but let's talk about John Renthorpe and Cajun Fire. Uh, you're a native of New Orleans. Uh, you're a father. You're married. You're a father of two. Your 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 wife and your children. Um, you where'd you meet your wife? So I met my wife at a movie theater. Uh, <laughs> we, we was on a double date, and I was in I was in high school. Like I, was, I think I was in shit. Excuse my French. I was maybe in tenth grade. Uh, we met at a, uh, a black-owned movie theater uh, called. It was a uh, part of the Grand franchise of, of uh, films. It's now owned by, I believe, AMC. Uh, but then it was a uh, it was one of the you know key in- entertainment locations in New Orleans East, which is a predominantly black community uh, in New Orleans. Uh, unfortunately, that location is no longer standing. You know, after Katrina, mm-hmm. uh, the building was dilapidated and uh, recently was destroyed. Um, but we met there. We saw uh, <laughs> uh, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. <laughs> okay. 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 So, <laughs> yeah, the first one, and um, yeah, after that, I was just hooked. I mean, she had she put a, a, a voodoo on me, and we've been uh, <laughs> we dated and throughout college, and uh, we we are now happily married. We got two kids. Uh, she's a she serves as a um, treasurer with the city of New Orleans, and she makes Cajun Fire book of business. Uh, stay vibrant. All, all right, uh, now. Yeah, and accounting backgrounds. Okay, nothing like a good woman on your team, huh? Absolutely. Okay, <laughs> so 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 let's establish that you all are high school sweethearts. We are. Okay, yeah. I love this story. It's already shaping up pretty good. <laughs> um, tell <laughs> tell me a little bit about your educational background. I know you have quite a few. Uh, accolades, uh, but let's start back to you know where did you go to college, etc. So I um I guess in true New Orleans fashion, uh, you know I, one of one of my most important uh, institutions that I attended, I attended St. Augustine High School, mm-hmm. uh, which is a um all male uh, private Catholic school, uh, black black male school. Um, you know that that was my foundation as far as uh, just teaching me the value of um, you know just manhood, real with you. Outside of my father and my, my brothers, my uncles, you know, you know these people in my life, that institution itself was very uh, very impressionable on me at a young age. Um, unfortunately, you know, my senior year of high school, uh, I was affected by Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. Uh, from there, I was displaced. I, uh, I applied to one college, uh, that's the University of Florida. Uh, because they I found out on the internet that they had a partnership school scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, thankfully, I received that, and the rest, I, you know, I moved out there. Um, I studied political science. Okay. Um, that was my, my major. Uh, my my minor was in environmental studies and, poli- and policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I moved back to the city, um, I then furthered my education with getting a master's degree in uh zoning and community development finance at University of New Orleans and honestly you know I, and I, I got a scholarship for that as well but honestly I, you know that was like latter at the latter part of my my career I really didn't think I'd be using that degree in a capacity in a capacity that I, I, I did thankfully I had that, that background because now as I, as I'm going to space of land ownership 
and uh, acquiring property and, and protecting that land. That thing, that thing is being used. Yeah, my gosh, <laughs> you, I mean, you, you've been set up just. I mean, really, you know, what a blessing. Your whole trail, it looks like, has led you in the right direction. Uh, even the displacement with Katrina, you know, that was fortunate, you know, too, you know. It's just amazing how uh, God's hand will provide, for sure. Um, right, and, and that was, a, and, and if I say one thing, like, even, like, going through the, the experience of Katrina, you know, I was at an old enough age when I had the responsibilities that came with, you know, trying to clean up my house, mm-hmm. uh, taking care of things, getting things together along my father, of course. Um, but I was I was young enough to be fearless and operating in a, in a pretty much a fallout zone. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that, that kind of shaped my personality into the business person I am today. Let's touch a little bit, though, on, on Katrina, because, um, you know, uh, we are... a a bit removed from it now however for those people who experienced it it is something that marked a a huge transition you know in your life um kind of like this pandemic has marked uh, all of us at this point uh how did you take in the loss the disparities um you know the community being devastated uh with regard to katrina and how does that memory push you forward now so uh, I felt kind of you know I, I couldn't it wasn't something I could escape even though I thought I was escaping just the reality of it by going to like a school in Florida PWI and being in these uh these nice domes right because I was in a trailer and uh going in that space you know it was a it's a, a a rewarding experience but at the same time it was like a guilty pleasure because I know like my family was living in a trailer, you know, doing it that, that day-to-day. Um, but you know, God kind of works in a, a, a neat way. All my close coursework, because I, st- I was studying political science, was specifically studying New Orleans. You know, we had a pretty mm-hmm. crazy 90s-era crime <laughs> situation. Uh, and everything I was studying was pretty much studying New Orleans. So, you know, equipped with that, fully understanding the, not only the uh, the racial element of how Katrina unfolded, but also understanding the context of like the environmental, uh, the policy, you know, you name it. Right. You know, I, I just, uh, I was able to really absorb the situation and, you know, come back and it, it really empowered me to this day where I'm, you know, I'm operating in the business space, you know, even though uh, the perception is that it's you're 17, 18 years removed from um, uh, when they made landfall, um, I'm, I'm pretty much still living like a, in like a cemetery of like out memories. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, it's it's very interesting, um, you know, how all of these uh, we are inundated as a people of this world with catastrophe and after catastrophe and all of these things are shaping our right now. And uh, it's interesting to think about how we project that energy forward. You know, if we use it to uh, spring forward development or if we are debilitated, you know, because of that impact. So um, I appreciate you sharing that. Let's talk about you being a member of the United Nation of Homa Indians. Tell me about that. And what, what does that really mean? 
So the United Nation Home of Indians, that's an indigenous uh, native tribe that mainly uh, stays along the coastal uh, part of the southeast region of, of uh, Louisiana. So you're talking about areas like Homa, Morgan City, probably the biggest landmark townships. But then, you know, it's, it's a lot of other places like Four Corners, Berwick, uh, Gibson, that's in this uh, space. But, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a member of that. And it's a tribal community that has traditionally lived off the, the land uh, in the Bayou region, uh, complexion like myself, Black Americans. Um, a lot of our members lost, you know, their identity due to like, you know, you switch from free people of color uh, to all these different other terms. And a lot of that land was not only that, that was owned by the tribe, was not only reclaimed and repossessed, but also redistributed and allocated. Uh, currently right now, we are recognized by the state of Louisiana. Uh, however, our tribe is not federally recognized. Okay. Um, so it, it does put put our tribal uh, community in a, a, a unique situation because you know, Louisiana is older than the U.S. itself. Mm. Uh, um, so you know, it, you know, I'm not I'm not sure the pol- politics behind why uh, federally is not recognized. However, uh, you know, it does. My company is. Uh, federally recognized as the first Native American-owned beer company in U.S. history. That's fantastic. And, you know, I, I, and it's a kind of conundrum, like, you know, for, for those that's not, uh, how can I say it, in, indoctrinated in, in certain kind of educational systems or understandings of what um, the indigenous population of Louisiana is. Uh, you know, it, when I when I mentioned, you know, I'm a Native American, sometimes people kind of feel off-putting. You know, they kind of have a lot more questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I do identify as a Black American. Uh, you know, I got family that uh, were uh, instituted in slavery. Uh, you know, and I, I could trace a lot of my lineage back. Thankfully, like you mentioned, my grandmother, she was a historian for the town of Berwick. So, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have like records mm-hmm. of my family dating back to the 17th century. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting situation um, being in this space and having these different uh, cultures that I represent. And did you uh, seek out to be identified with your company as a Native American or Indigenous tribe? Or, uh, you know, how did you decide to add that to your brand or, you know, your orientation, period? Well, yeah, more, more so came because my brand, with, with my brand, I'm, I'm very much history uh, focused. I, I think that's the most distinguishing fact about my brand. You know, I, I built it as a legacy business. Mm-hmm. I built it to uh, to highlight our contributions. And even in me stating that, you know, we the first this and first that, it comes with a grain of salt because, you know, you couldn't own a LLC if you were black in, this, in the U.S. until like the, the late or early 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, you wasn't classified as a human being until the, the turn of the last century. So, you know, uh, it, it, you know, it doesn't I don't really even lead with it too much. Mm-hmm. Um, it probably selfishly is only for branding because the the fact is there's been countless amount of uh, not only Black Americans that have contributed to like the landscape of beer and and spirits, wine, you name it, moonshine. Um, but we we just haven't been able to to form an LLC until most recently. And even today, it's still like you know very a very hard in, in uh, industry to, to get into and, and truly thrive and compete absolutely and we're going to talk more about that let's talk about um, you being a cultural ambassador for the 
historic Treme community. Uh, I'd like to know uh, for many people who will be listening to this podcast internationally, by the way, what does it mean, Treme? What does that mean? We've heard that in movies and different. What's what's Treme? So Faubourg Treme. So that's uh, you know, French for neighborhood, community. Okay. Um, it's the old Treme. I know a lot of people came, it came into a lot of people lexicon with the, uh, the HBO series Treme, which right. is pretty amazing. If you can go back and watch and check it out, it's, it's really on par with the, the culture uh, and in tune with it. But um, the Treme is the oldest uh, black neighborhood uh, or community in the U.S. Um, it, it formerly was a, a black Wall Street uh, that was very... Um, very much very vital to the to foundation in New Orleans and the black community in that space, mm. uh, providing countless legacy businesses. It still does house like a large black population, although like been um, disparaged with a lot of just uh, high advanced gentrification. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, there was a there was an interstate system that was determined to run right through it, and it it pretty much it practically destroyed like like four hundred uh, businesses that was in that that landscape. Uh, and, it, and it's something that's been done around the U.S. as a strategy to, uh, I guess, further disparage our, our growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Treme was very much, you know, it hit home with uh, a lot of it. So in my, my capacity, one recognizes the cultural bear. A lot of what I do with my beer products, uh, specifically when I was first starting out, you know, I would I would donate products uh, to like different uh, Mardi Gras Indians, which are uh, walking Indian tribes, which. Uh, dress up in the ornate suits that people are found of in New Orleans that are associated with Mardi Gras. I would uh, I would donate beer to their fundraising initiatives. Um, although I don't mask myself uh, because that's a whole that's a whole culture and science. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, I just make sure I protect the history. Uh, I own a couple different artifacts. Uh, I just try to make sure that. You know that history is preserved, even on like some of the language, language of some of the brands that we have. Like we have a brand called Big Chief, uh, we have a brand called Big Queen. I make sure I trademark, wordmark, protect them on that level. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that that's just you know I don't, I don't really go out my way to to, to be in the, these different titles, but uh, you know if it if it suits what I'm doing, you know I don't mind it. And I think uh, with my efforts. Um, I, I like I like the ring of culture bear. I mean, it, it's yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's pretty cool. Nothing wrong with you. that. Uh, yeah, I like I like it, and um, you know that's something I don't see myself like pumping off the gas on. So uh, mm-hmm. that's that's kind of that. Okay, well, well, since you mentioned the brand and the beer, let us do dive into Cajun Fire Brewing Company. Uh, what do how do they say it down there in Louisiana? Because I know I'm. I'm Cajun Fire, you know. How do you say it in New Orleans? I always, when I give people my email address, I always got to spell out the full thing because some people think I'm about to say drink <laughs> or fire. But it's just, it's just Cajun Fire. Cajun Fire or fire. Yeah. Now, if you had about three or four, then yeah, your, your tongue start driving and you say it. I done had it screamed at me. All, all kind of languages. Um, <laughs> So even even now, my voice I kind of got used to kind of talking in this kind of pattern because you know like if I'm feeling good and I might have something in my system I'm, I might need a, a caption. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. How do you dream up uh, becoming a brewmaster? How does 
Cajun Fire come to life? Uh, well, honestly, uh, I believe in ownership. You know, I, I grew up listening to No Limit, Master P, the Birdman, Cash Money Records. You know, I grew up on that that type <laughs> of influence. For better or worse, right? Yeah. Uh, but even don't like, leave you know, out mystical all, now. Don't leave out mystical. <laughs> yeah, mystical. Uh, hey, we, <laughs> um, Michael Jackson. Yeah. You know, uh, Prince, Rick James, all these, all these cats and musicians and talents. They one thing they preached. Uh, you know, in y'all area, UGK. One thing they always preached was ownership. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know. There's, there's a lot of similarity between distribution in the beer industry and distribution in the music industry where you have to you have to own what you can mm-hmm. and that's the only way where you have a, a, a voice all that you got a bargaining chip to negotiate anything uh it's a very cutthroat you know um capitalist intense industry mm-hmm. and uh if i didn't have ownership you know from the jump start i kind of went in with that mindset i wouldn't be here i wouldn't have a brand you know, I just be you know, no no disrespect, but I just be like a far back in these locations because the reality is a lot of a lot of industry, especially when I was coming in just twelve years ago, they wouldn't hire anybody that looked like me. Right. Uh, now the landscape is a little bit different, mm-hmm. but you still gotta you still have a lot of those barriers to entry for um, for just the most menial uh, opportunities in in the brewing industry. So you know, when I came in, I was like, all right, well, you know, only got. I already mentioned like how I was feeling from Katrina. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, man, look, I only got one life to live. If I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it in a way I I think uh, is deserving of our of our community and kind of history. Well, why beer? So I, when I was in college, I moved away with a lot of my personal belongings, which was like gumbo pots and you know, <laughs> cliche. <laughs> all this things right that was my that was my belongings i wanted to go into culinary uh like a culinary school but they didn't offer that that you didn't have that at uh university of florida so and uh the food wasn't that great because i was in gainesville no disrespect to gainesville but you know, it was kind of like going from food mecca to you know what whatever that is and uh i would experiment with a lot of things that i couldn't necessarily afford and one of them i took affinity to was drinking craft beer and I said, I'm, I'm gonna look up on YouTube how to make this. I didn't find anything on YouTube, but at that time, it, like, there was a lot of torrent-heavy apps. Like, you know, you had Kazar, you had uh, Napster, you had all these, you know, I forgot some of the other ones, but I found um, homebrew videos from, from these, like, you know, white men in Maine mm-hmm. and whatever. And uh, it was very detailed. I started looking at it, uh, kind of, re-engineered how they did it and then I had my own style on it and first beer I made out thankfully tastes great and I was hooked <laughs> after that so you I made your brewing, first beer at college with. <laughs> you made your first college, beer at college uh, <laughs> did you share it when or I moved what back, I started a, oh yeah so when I moved back I started having a void because everything was pretty much destroyed like all the warehousing and breweries that we did have they, they weren't existing anymore and uh yeah it, it was a lot of things that came in that was that impacted my decision to just dive right into it. I was uh, working in corporate. I was selling urinals and renting cars with different kind of car companies. I just couldn't get out that that mix. So yeah. I would, you know, work my butt off at night, tweaking, brewing. I was I, I referred to the slave brew at the time because it was very grueling. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so uh, Cajun.
Cajun Fire is touted as a family-owned business. Uh, what what does that mean? Who's who's involved? So my, my literally my family. Uh, and you know uh, my, my older brother, he's a chemist. He works with our company. Uh, make sure our yeast is happy. Make sure we scale that up and, and get it to the right uh, producers. Uh, my wife, I mentioned, you know, she does a lot of accounting work. My father, my my mother, they also have an accounting background. Uh, they were very hands-on with supporting me to to even you know consider entertaining going into that space. Um, so yeah, it's you know it's very family-oriented. I got a, a close friend of mine that was one of my roommates. He works with us as well. He's an um, anthropologist, so he helps with a lot of like the historical and branding initiatives that we do. Um, but yeah, we, we, you know, just family oriented and those that I do business with, uh, normally, you know, you know, close friends, uh, business people or colleagues that I developed a professional relationship that, that turned into close friends. So, mm-hmm. so it, it promotes a family atmosphere, period. So everybody in Cajun Fire's family. Yes. yes <laughs> yeah. And I note, I kind of, I'm looking at my uh, notes here. It's speaking about um, University of Florida that you were honored as 40 under 40 uh, back there, yeah. and I, 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 ha- I highlighted that because I was 40 under 40 uh, here in Houston with the Houston Business Business Journal. So okay, that that 40 under 40 is a great. Um, it's it is awesome to watch the trajectory of the people who are highlighted in 40 under 40 and really where they go. So I know that you uh, have scored some big points for University of Florida uh, with your efforts I would, now. I would like to think so. I think, they, um, I think the other side, as you know, I think I got the, the big bag. So, you know, I get a nice little birthday card every every blue moon. But uh, I, I told them I got them on the back end. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, talk about uh, beer, making beer. Um, how does it come together? So I try not to get into the weeds with it because it, you know, yeah. I think I, I think I could kind of tote the line where I could keep it entertaining and not get too fancy. Sure. It, it is one of the most complex beverages in civilization. Mm-hmm. It's also one of the most oldest beverages in civilization outside of like me. You know, uh, it's been it's more than 10,000 years old. And even like now we're discovering, you know, artifacts and, and full scale manufacturing breweries, and excavations in like Syria and Jordan and, and Egypt. Right. Um, but it, it's, it's it's for me, beer, I feel like is a um, it's very spiritual. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a beverage that's alive because the yeast is always alive in it. OK. Uh, when I when I make the product, it is very therapeutic. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty much just water, hops, and barley. Uh, that's kind of it. I mean, mm-hmm. it and yeast. So you got you know you can always branch off into different styles and go outside of different purity laws. But for the most part, that's the components of it. And um, you know, it's it's eighty percent water. So you know, it, it's very complex. It can't be really emulated from one state to the next, or one country to the next. You know the, the profile of it is as uh, as a deep dive as you want to go into it. Each, each area requires certain levels of tutelage and study mm-hmm. to really master it. And um, you know why there's still unknown areas. And I think that's you know it's like golf. I never be able to perfect it. I know what styles I'm good at. Normally I'm very I'm very versed in like stouts. That's probably my most proficient 
uh, style. So most people refer first introduction to stouts is like a Guinness. Um, my, my styles are very similar to what you will find in the Guinness, but I just, I never really have the, uh, based on the palace that's in my region, I don't necessarily have that bitterness to it. Okay. So like a lot of my clients, because the you know, majority of my clients, believe it or not, are like black women, especially with us being like a, we're uh, a sponsor for Essence Fest. Okay. Which is like a huge migration of black women professionals. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of my, most, most people that first try out my product are black women. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, like I know specifically for I'd say palates, hops don't really, you know, they're not as appealing. Like the, the overly bitterness, the double right. IPAs, you know, the, the real hot focus beers, they just don't necessarily do well in my, my market. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got those that's aficionados that have developed an acquired taste for it. Okay. But between the humidity with it being hot as hell. Yeah. You know, uh, it's always raining. Yeah. Normally people want to want to try something that's a little bit more refreshing and less the hop stakes. So what what I developed as my kind of go to for, so should I say my flagship, I incorporated using honeys um, as a substitute for uh, any kind of sugars or anything like that in my beers. I don't use any kind of adjuncts, no flavor enhancements. Um, I got real professional using molasses as well. Is that something that's easily sourced in my area? Wow. Uh, normally what a, what a brewery brews comes down to the region they're in, what they can easily source, and what the palate is desiring uh, in my space. I normally have to compete against like very spicy foods, uh, very savory foods. So I try to make sure it's something that like, you know, if somebody eating a pole bar, they'll put it down to get something that's refreshing. Right, <laughs> you know, right. It's very, it's a very, I'm, I'm normally at competition with what's on somebody's plate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like that you're mentioning that black women or women, period, are really uh, increasing in numbers as beer drinkers. I don't know that um, maybe people think of women drinking beer. I don't know. But I like what you're saying in terms of making it a little bit more honey. You know, uh, the hop, the hops. That's for me. I, I can't say that I'm a big beer drinker. And it is because of that flavor. So I do need to get a case of a Cajun Fire six pack something. <laughs> and pack, twenty four pack. Listen, well, let me be the judge of it, okay? Uh, uh, and I, the mention, so like a lot of like a lot of demographics right now, like you know, we in we in a state where you got uh, drive through bakery shops, open container laws. Most people buy their products just walk around and be married, you know. Um, so like in our space. 80% of our sales comes from grocery retailers. Okay. And, and uh, you know, the people with the most expendable income right now uh, is women, mm-hmm. particularly uh, black business women. Mm-hmm. They have expendable income that's unmatched. Um, even like uh, white white people, they have a lot of expendable income. So, you know, that that is normally the first entry in my products. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of misconceptions because, you know, like in the 90s, you know, uh, Advertising was heavy on, <laughs> uh, you know, Baywatch theme, you know, like you know, you had the press firing uh, beer, Budweiser came, you know, that that was that was the thing, and then you know, we changed the game somewhat. And a guy that was like, hey, I crap all that, gonna buy the most expensive Super Bowl ad and put frogs on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that yeah. Kinda, that kind of changed the flow, but it, it, it's uh, uh, it's still a life. Mm-hmm. Perception that's lingering. A lot of people that you know, women 
uh, don't drink beer, and that's what because um, I think it's people, particularly I with people's income, was uh, uh, doing all this different research and different missions. I think that that kind of history history uh, just started flourishing. Yeah, I like it a lot. Um, I certainly um, think about as a urban farmer. Uh, I have entertained the thought of growing hops, right? For all of these craft beers, so many craft beers out there. And I wonder, where do you source your ingredients for your your compilations? So I, I source my ingredients. Uh, you know, I always try to keep my ingredients like U.S. and domestic. Mm-hmm. Um We'll start from the cans. The cans I sourced from like a couple companies in, in Portland, uh, just because like along on that, that interstate system, it's very easy to get my, my cans in, in transit from the East Coast. Okay. Uh, and that includes labels and things like that. Uh, right now, I co-produce out in Sterling, Virginia. So I normally ship like molasses and things to that location. I scale up the products. Uh, and that's that's all until my, my own physical brick and mortar is built. Like right now, uh, I am constructing a, uh, on a 14 commercial development program at Tight Controller. And, you know, that will that will a lot more opportunities for me to source more locally made products. But right now, I normally just source money domestically, molasses domestically. These are products that, as long as they, you know, they have an infinite shelf life. Okay. And uh, I just try to make sure I have that cost effective products that are very strong in, in uh, flavor profile, but also very rich. In, in specific to our region. You mentioned um, how you compose the beers, specifically uh, using what sounds like natural ingredients, honey, molasses, um, local, regional sourced items. But how do you actually come up with what you are going to present in terms of the flavor profile? Is there a um, roundtable discussion on like, what do we want to right now? What's going on, you know, in the community? How do you come up with that? So I'm a, uh, like with, I guess it's, it's kind of maybe three components, right? I look at um, one, the price to source it, will it be like cost effective? Because that's, that's probably the most important lingering thing to make sure, all right, if I'm going to do it, I don't want to go in the hole with, you know, uh, uh, being obsessed about making a product. And if it is a product like that, what the price point is going to be, um, I have to look at something that can be effective in the, the market I'm in. I'm not necessarily in a region where, like, people are staying in line and buy 20 20- 20 uh 20 four packs right okay. so i have to be cognizant of like not only the spending habits but also just uh the seasons so um what makes what what i determine to be like what a flavor profile is going to be for my brand uh normally i need something that can that can resonate well with my target market um something that tastes well you know i am i am still very much enthused about the different beers that i expose myself to and normally if I try something I really like, uh, I try to make sure I can emulate it and try to tweak it in a way that it has my own uh, spin on it. Um, perfect example is like we, we created a product called Bayou Cowboy, uh, which is a white ale, which is a, uh, a mild I- IPA, if you would. 
and I had a product I used to drink a lot. <laughs> I'm not gonna name. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I wanted something similar to it, and mm-hmm. uh, that's what came out of it. Uh, you know, we had it was very how we created it. Uh, we added be- uh, bread to the uh, fermenter. It gave it a nice crisp uh, malt finish. Uh, it's almost like a traditional IPA, but it has a lot of refinement to it and how we how we produced it. And, uh, you know, from there, I tried to get the the feel of the product to emulate, like, you know, because it's called Bayou Cowboy. So, you know, when I was trying to brew it and think about the design and all that, I, I submerged myself into, like, Western culture as far okay. as, like, like, Western movie culture mm-hmm. and also, like, trail rides. So I thought about, oh, what's going to be something that'll hit at, a, like, a trail ride or something like that, you know? Mm, uh, what did you come up with? I came up with that product. What did you come up with that would hit at a at a trail ride? Uh, Sometime I do take input. So uh, when we created our Big Chief Cream Stout, we created that beer. It paid homage to like the Mardi Gras Indians and uh, particularly uh, Chief Shaka Zulu, who is a very uh, profound uh, member of the Mardi Gras Indian culture. Uh, he's been featured on all kind of different documentaries. He's really great at curating the history. Um, you know, I asked him what kind of beers he liked. He said he likes stouts. And uh, I said, all right, I'm going to tailor this product to fit your need, but I'm also making it very commercially accessible. And uh, we came out with a cream stout uh, that we created, uh, not too earthy, very smooth, uh, has a nice uh, refined finish, and it's also 5%, so it's very palatable. Um, okay. That's You know, normally the, the methodology I do when I make products, I try to make sure it's hitting on all these different measures. So it can be something named just a one shot. It's something that could kind of resonate well with my audience. How long does it take you to bring a product to market? You're talking about, you know, how you uh, go through the various taking input and uh, highlighting subjects or uh, different things that you want to see legacy wise for the brand and the product. How long does it take you to actually have a finished product? Normally a little bit shy of a year. Um, you know, we got a plan for it. We got to, you know, whenever one school go, skew goes into motion, we got to make sure we got a store for it that want to accept it. Uh, you got to apply for UPC codes. Uh, most time consuming, you got we got to get all our trademark labels and things approved by the uh, the uh, cola, like for cola submissions. So normally, normally about a year from from proof of concept to uh, finished product. So let's let's be clear: it's a year for each beer. Yes. Okay. You currently have how many beers on the market? Currently, we have nine beers. On the Wow, that's amazing. Um, I do like the fact that when you look at the cans of beer, they're very attractive, eye-catchy, very cultural. So let's talk about branding and how you come up with the concept of uh, the labeling and the. do you have a graphic designer doing the artwork? Because a lot of these cans are something that stands out, you know, mm-hmm. just visually. Oh, yeah, well, everything we do is in-house. So, like, I, I've, I've even got pretty proficient at uh, Adobe Illustrator and things like that. But really, it, the science to it is kind of already uh, 
in your face. So we have like, you know, with all the different like UPC codes that you got to have on it, the Surgeon General label, uh, the date, the origin, the date of production. There's a lot of things as far as regulatory information that, that canvases your, your label. So when I'm looking at it, I always approach it from a, a center mass kind of approach where the, the labels and the regulatory information is on the outskirts and the, the singular part is where you have like the uh, your logo, which is always uniform. Uh, and then, you know, your brand type. And then you have like maybe out of a label, we might have like maybe two six of the label. We can play with it. And, and really have a design, something that's design heavy. So it's, it's really not too much room you have to float with too much creativity. I was saying you, you really don't have too much room for too much creativity to be real with you. Uh -huh. uh, the most important thing is to make sure the font is visible. And even like when you talk about when you're dealing with uh, a brand in another country, like for instance, like Canada, you have to have two uh, two languages on most of your cans. So, you know, yeah. you really get kind of really, uh, it's very difficult to figure out how you want to make your can stand out when you have like four or six of the can uh, being composed of just like, you know, Surgeon General labels and things that are right. supplied in the USDA and the, the COLA. Okay. Okay. But then, like I said, do you, do you brainstorm with other people about what you do have? Because you got the big chief, which is big mm -hmm. chief, but you've got the big queen. Is it big queen? Big queen. Yep. Yeah, and so you've got the 80, the, the Indian uh, lady in all her full glory on there. So how, how do you come up with those ideas of just that piece? So with those, because we, we're not using like a, a design and we're using somebody likeness on the can, uh, we would approach. So the person on the Big Queen, she's actually a, a famous uh, pop singer named Dawn Richards. Um, she formerly was with Vanity Kane and now she's like on a she's on her own uh, single pet, like as a single solo artist. And, um, you know, with her, because she, she does have like management tiers and things like that, I had to submit it to the uh, her manager make sure it approved and hit and then resonated well with her brand and imagery and then you know get that feedback so for like a product like that or even like the big chief those products are much more involving of other people's opinions on like what direction they want to go with if we do a collaboration like let's say with like a Brooklyn brewery or like a black bike and brewery company uh, which we've done you know we get feedback uh, but things that's uh, within our warehouse we normally just kind of trust our own creative judgment and let it let it out <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> not, yeah, not yeah. too many room not too many barriers to like from proof of concept to putting it in the market where we have to go through these different channels and i think sometimes it allows us to even um run a good stride with getting our products out to market in a timely fashion where it can be you know viral or trending or whatever mm -hmm. uh, because we don't have that many filters you know You mentioned your wheelhouse. Let's talk about your wheelhouse, which is, is it still under construction? You tell us a little bit about um, the acreage, how you found the land uh, that you're constructing uh, Cajun Fire Bring, where you're manufacturing, mm -hmm. and give, give us some information about that. 
so we when we was looking for property when we was originally trying to do our brick and mortar uh within like the uh, i guess the fresh quarter area in new orleans uh we, we literally couldn't find <laughs> i submitted like 20 to close to 30 letters of uh you know requests for like different opportunities for lease options and we couldn't find anybody that wanted to lease anything. Couldn't find anybody that wanted to sell anything. Uh, people told us all kind of stuff, like even with money in hand, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they can't do business with us because of religious reasons. And you know, I, I see them lease opportunities to other bars and just ignore my my request. Uh, so after a while, I was like, all right, well, screw it. I'm just um, just gonna buy on land. And that came with its own challenges. Uh, but we was able to find this acreage right next to a abandoned theme park. Um, that just so happens to be on right right adjacent to the uh the I-10 interstate. And um Fantastic. Yeah, we closed on the property. Um it was uh it's, it's right now 14 acres. Uh we have full site control of it. It's zone C3, so we can do anything under the sun on the property. The only thing we can't do in tandem with the brewery is uh run a winery. However, um yeah, it, it's it's it's, it's a blessing uh, to have that much land and be able to like, you know, the, the brewery is one component of it. Um, the area we've dubbed the New Orleans East Cultural Hub and there are other like manufacturing fact, uh, faculties that we'll have developed around the, the footprint of the brewery. Uh, with the brewery being like the, you know, the, the main powerhouse of income and revenue stream, uh, you know, that and it's an elastic commodity we produce so people don't drink beer. You got a pandemic, uh, recession, you know, whatever. It's always going to be uh, consumers that's ready to, to consume a beer product. Uh, we feel confident that we'll be able to create a, a manufacturing identity in our footprint in uh, New Orleans East. That's fantastic. I note that you, uh, like you said, the the brewery itself is the heart of it, but you have plans for a cultural museum. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got a culinary stream. you got a community garden, which I love. All of these factors I love. Tasting room. So um, why did you want to incorporate these different uh, facets of your work in that property? So when I, when I was um, scouring for just influence and really trying to find any kind of mentors in a space that looked like me, you know, majority of my, my, uh, my searches began and end like with people that was, you know, no longer with us. And, you know, yeah. when I try to find any kind of, any kind of blueprint, any kind of, uh, you know, trinkets, artifacts of these these breweries, what I came across was that a lot of their assets and I would call them artifacts were either destroyed or intentionally purchased and hidden. Um, so even even so that that kind of engaged me where right now I probably own one of the, if not the I might own one of the largest black uh, artifact uh, collections of like you know our contributions to beer and, and wine and, and moonshine and things like that I, I take you know I still hunt for a lot of these different things and there ain't really too many companies that you can find uh, but I have been able to find a lot of um, like you know old tap handles like from company like People's Brewing or like cans and box materials and print materials and marquees from a company called Black Pride Beer um, you know what I can find, I find, and you know what I can uh, salvage. Eventually, I would like to put it in a museum where other people can see it, because you know that was a definitely at some point in time a deliberate effort to remove any of our uh, not only patents but inventions as it came to the beer space and the manufacturing of it. So I just try to make sure I can kind of preserve that history and 
if I could have a museum and it could generate, you know, selfishly de- generate tourism dollars, but also serve as a form of preservation, uh, I'm here to do that as well. And the community garden, why did you want to put that in the compound? Well, I'm like, a, I'm in an area that, you know, even though we're in New Orleans, we have like a lot of food disparities. So, you uh-huh. know, if you, you want to eat fried food to your heart content or your heart stop, you can, <laughs> you can have at it. But it's like, you know, I'm in an area where we got all these different restaurants, but really we don't have that many, we don't have that many grocery stores. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of odd. Uh, and, you know, we definitely don't have a, a push for like growing and, and being versed in it. We kind of saw, we, we kind of saw like a spike in people getting more engaged with like growing their own foods and stuff like that. But a lot of that has kind of gotten away from us. So, you know, I, I hope, you know, we could at least make an impact with having that. And, you know, because we got the land we own, it's like extremely fertile. Uh, it, it didn't have any kind of pre-existing infrastructure on it. Um, it's very, it's, it's prime for growing whatever. You know, it's it's black as soot. That's how. That's how how, how, how much land going. do you have dedicated? Are you dedicating to the garden? Maybe an acre. Uh, we'll we'll see how, how it works out, but maybe an acre, and we'll we'll look at other opportunities to scale it. There might be some some greenhouse companies that we could potentially collaborate with as like an ecosystem partner that would be much more uh, versed at that kind of conversation. But you know, we we have the land to kind of at least allocate an acre and grow it from there if need be. Okay, I love that. You uh, wanted to do- go to culinary school yourself, and you are incorporating that in part of your business compound. Uh, what are you going to be offering in terms of a culinary institute at Cajun Fire? Uh, access to ghost kitchens, uh, oh. specifically. Yeah, because uh, we, we got a lot... We have a lot of businesses that kind of begin and end at the, the food truck stage. And, you know, while it is, you know, that that is very ambitious in itself. Uh, I know that's not the end goal for a lot of people that engage in that space. It's, it's some, sometimes, it, you know, as a means to an end. And, uh, you know, the, the reality is a lot of a lot of our, our chefs don't have access to uh, ghost kitchens to further um, expand their, their, their companies or even a manufacturer, like you said, if they want to manufacture box or retail products, they don't have that that opportunity and access. So we hope we can uh, provide that. Well, I, I love, you know, that you have had the vision for um, legacy in building this business and you've thought about the community, obviously, through and through. Uh, you've thought about how you can continue to give back. And speaking of that, you are a local philanthropist. Talk a little bit about how you are giving back to the community through your beer company distribution, et cetera. Uh, mainly with my time. I mean, I don't, you know, I mentioned I ain't really like, I'm, I'm kind of absorbing a lot of fees. So a lot of my, I'm not really revenue in, uh, heavy as I would like to be. Because mm-hmm. I, I pretty much am in a phase where I'm still building, so a lot of my revenues go right back into my business. But what I do do is I, I try to donate my time. I also serve um, as the executive director of New Orleans Regional Black Chamber, which you know I, I I do the nine to five side of it, but I also take on like a lot of like midnight all sessions where I uh, I assist businesses to the best of my ability with just things they can avoid. So you know I, I know like. Uh, because I am in this industry where it's extremely regulated, 
and I've experienced a lot of different, you know, not only systemic disparities, but also uh, overcome them. And in many senses, uh, you know, I have a lot to give in the space of uh, pro bono assistance to, mm-hmm. to businesses up and coming, or even people that's in, in, in my industry space, like this, hey, might save you, may save you a month or some he- headache if you just don't do that. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Uh, that's kind of, that's the that's the work I give back. I try to just invest my time. I'm also, uh, I serve on 100 Black Men of Metro New Orleans, uh, which is a mentoring organization. Uh, so I try to mentor the youth to just, you know, let them, let them engage entrepreneurship. A lot of you already practice entrepreneurship, especially like with TikTok and Instagram and, you know, how savvy they are with that. I just try to make sure they understand how to layer it where you got an LLC and you are uh, recognized by the state. So you can get all the the uh, rewards of having your business fully fledging and, and doing what it got to do. Yeah, and I, and I commend you for those efforts for sure. Let's talk about beer and food. What kind mm-hmm. of what kind of food makes the beer sing? So man, <laughs> <laughs> I like how you said that. I, I've I've grown an affinity. Like I, I go through phases. So right now, my my favorite pairing combination is uh, raw Gulf Coast oysters with beer. They could be charbroiled as well, but you know, for me. Gone silent. I don't, I don't know what my phone keeps unlock, uh, locking and unlocking like that. Uh, but for me right now, my, my favorite pairing is uh, raw oysters, Gulf Coast oysters with uh, with like an amber ale or like my honey ale in particular. Um, I know a lot of people kind of might might not be that ballsy to go on the raw side, but even if you're doing charbroiled, uh, man, that's just a that is <laughs> that is the spot right there. That's the spot. Um, what about spicy? Spicy. I, I could get down with spicy. Um, I mean crawfish. I love it. Uh, I ain't, I haven't perfected my crawfish recipe yet, so I don't really get down with it too much. But uh, you know, I make some I make some pretty pretty uh badass wings. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I and love, what, what beer is gonna go with that? What 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 are your beers are you gonna drink with the wings? With the wings, I, I do IPA with that. They don't even have to be my IPA. I'll, I'll do any IPA with some wings. Um, I got real good at making steak during uh right before the right before the uh, COVID popped off. I had I went to a couple restaurants. There's like some high end restaurants, and I was like, man, I can make this at my house. So you know, I got my little Costco card and my Restaurant Depot card. They know me. <laughs> Come in there, got my slab. I figured out how to cure it. Uh, aged it a little bit and um like dry aged it and I, I got real real surgical with <laughs> okay. the tape. So just just things I like to make because I, I am fascinated with uh like I'm always watching like food documentaries and stuff like that. That's like my um when I ain't in the, the weeds, uh, I'm not in the uh the space of just working on my business when I'm trying to relax. Mm-hmm. I normally just put on put on like one of these food programs let it play in the background and you know shuck some oysters or something like that and that's, yeah that's, and and that's eat and watch day. eat watch and drink eat, repeat eat, watch <laughs> it's it, 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 sometimes with discipline i try to do like one to five so shuck five and eat one and <laughs> it don't always turn out 
it don't it don't always turn out like that about that that ratio you know <laughs> <laughs> well let me say this too um you know i know that you have seasonal you you've explained you know you got the seasonal beers and now you've explained how long it takes to bring the beer to market so i was going to make the suggestion that if you you know want to have a season of uh march season uh pisces season uh, chef season, Chef Tarsha's freestyle flavor brew would be a nice uh, can to have in the in the arsenal. I'm up well, for it. You. Okay, <laughs> we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna work on that. <laughs> you have been quoted as saying. Um, that what makes our beer unique is the rich memories that our community experiences while they endure our beers. So say to me uh, something about the feedback that you've received from your community, because I imagine it's overwhelming pride. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I I receive a little bit of everything. Uh, In New Orleans, like the hospitality, I think that's the, you know, I think that's the language that everybody understands. You know, I, I, I really think being hospitable, even if you don't understand the person, just being hospitable and respectful, um, I think that's a universal language. And I know whenever we are we are in a space where we are in service, we just try to make sure we, you know, we carry ourselves and be present. That's one thing, you know, if I, if I ain't in the mindset to be present and when I do all these different servings, I usually, I usually don't try to, I, I try not to put my space and myself in a space where I can't mentally be there and um you know i'm very protective on what organizations my brand latches with or even partners up with and i think that that's how we've been able to preserve memories we ain't just you know in spaces just to be in them or be seen you know we try to keep keep our brand um aligned with like our mission which is growing for socioeconomic change one pint at a time so everything that falls under that pedigree you know we can't can't help but go in a good good space and then create some some solid uh memories and opportunities understood but what are the people on the street what does the second line have to say about cajun fire Ooh, everything <laughs> <laughs> some, things I can, some things i can articulate on here and some things i can't uh they t- i mean they tell me it's good and everything in between uh where can i buy it i didn't know about y'all and uh you know they uh, it's it's all it's all love and it always comes from a good space. I get a lot of people that tell me that they don't drink beer, so I always be like, "Well, you ain't try my beer," yeah. and uh, you know that sometimes breaks that ice a little bit. But uh, you know, we we still are very much in a market that hasn't been exposed to uh, to craft beer and haven't been, I guess, is exposed to it in an inclusive way. Mm-hmm. So the majority of people I meet, you know, one they be like, "Oh, this your beer?" Uh, like they ask me this. <laughs> Y'all, just y'all come, you know, they ask me that. They go through the whole motions of just disbelief. Yes, and, uh, absolutely. Yeah, so that, if I'm kind of recalling correctly, that's that's normally the main thing people ask me. This your product? And, do you work for them? And you are a, a young man, too. So I imagine, uh, you know, it is disbelief. I'm glad you use that uh, because it's disbelief. It's polished. It's such a polished looking product. And they probably run through the gamut of having cried and then like, oh, this can't really be true. And, you know, and then they drink it 
and you know they get that laissez bonton roulette style rolling <laughs> <laughs> and and so that's got to be a great feeling for you huh it is it is uh yep it definitely is what about mom and dad what do they have to say about all of this I'm 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 thrilled to know and understand that they're proud about everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they've been supporting me from day one, and um, you know I'm also you know I'm cognizant and blessed that I even have two parents and you know, they're still living. That's right. They've been in my life, so you know I'm, I'm just you know I'm blessed. I I can't I can't you know understate that. Yeah, um, I like to tell tell me you said where can we get the product? Touch on that um, because I don't know where it's all available. I know you got Louisiana probably on lock or at least New Orleans, but where can other people find it? And for those of us who are not in the area, can they? Uh, you know, can it be shipped? Give me, give us some information on that. Because we headquartered in New Orleans, we can't ship it unfortunately. Um, oh. We in like the most regulated state in the U.S. when it comes to uh, beer, even though we have like open container laws and drive through daiquiri shops and you know you name it, um, because we have so many different lobbyists that normally reflect the interests of big beer. Big Biz said we don't want any more breweries in the state of Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> so we were very we like neck and neck with Mississippi. Like a matter of fact, until 2014, you couldn't have a uh, a tap room attached to your uh, your physical brewery until like some, some policies got changed with the Senate. Um, but on our end, you know, we, you can find us in Walmart, uh, Trader Trader Joe's, Total Wines, uh, Rouse's, that's our biggest retailers. Um, we're in six parishes in Southeast Louisiana, uh, mainly around Greater New Orleans uh, metro area. Um, in Michigan, of all places, we are state, we have statewide distribution out there in Michigan. Um, you know, Trader Joe's, I mean, Total Wines is our biggest retailer in Michigan. Uh, we are actively working. I'm happy to say we're actively working on getting access. Uh, the phone's about to die. we actively working on getting access to the state of Texas. So we recognize by the controller. <laughs> we're just working okay. on getting the distribution agreement set up. Uh, I'm very happy about that. You know, Texas is a big old country. Like, once you're in Texas, you're good. Trying to, you're trying good. To That's why I keep telling people, baby, come yeah. on down. Listen, I'm I'm not, I'm gonna keep you keep you brief since you we we about to end this. Um, I I like to end with asking people about uh, my scenario, which is you are being shipped off to a deserted island. You have one kitchen crate, so you know what that is—that milk crate. What's in your crate? A knife, <laughs> yeah, big old knife. Just, I'm gonna I'm I'm suck something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a let me see a knife, uh, a, a flag gun, <laughs> some some uh, some firestones, and I think I don't know. I get I get three. I watch I watch enough of Naked and Free. That's all I get. <laughs> <laughs> no, you get you know I said you got one kitchen crate the crate you oh, can fill up the crate, crate. oh well, <laughs> uh my, my glasses are some form of contacts because I'll be blind and I'll be done if, if I'm in my, my vision <laughs> I ain't quite get laser surgery yet um uh, some binoculars and a <laughs> and you didn't say any beer 
I mean, I'm, if I'm on an island, I ain't trying to relax. I'm trying to get yeah. off that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Most islands used to be prisons, so I'm not I'm not a fan of being on the island for longer than a week, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You would you say you gotta stay on task. Okay, yeah. it's been such a wonderful pleasure for me to talk to you. I'm I celebrate you um and your success, your family's success, the legacy that you're creating, the inspiration that you're giving to the world. Uh it, it's most appreciated. Give me your one word. Hmm. Uh, let's see. Hmm. I will see. I will see. Love. What is it? Love. Love. Why? I mean, if you can't love yourself, right? You can't love nobody else. Uh, you can't really live to your potential. So I think a lot of uh, what we see in the day when it comes to like, you know, unfortunate incidences or whatever, it, it all stirs from a lack of love of self. You have to love yourself if you want to love somebody else and really uh, create you know, influence on your legacy. Super powerful. It's been a wonderful opportunity for me to speak with you. John Renthorpe, Cajun Fire Brewing Company. I'm going to come on down to New Orleans so I can get a swig of beer. And decide well, if you if you want me over or not. <laughs> so yeah, I got the, the 24 and the 48 pack waiting for you. <laughs> All right. We'll see you. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. All righty. Thanks for listening to Freestyle Flavor, a bi-weekly production. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you're alerted to every new uploaded episode. And if you'd like to get in contact with us here at the podcast, we'd love to hear back from you. Send your email to freshandfreestyleflavor at gmail.com. That's going to do it for this episode. In the meantime and in between time, I am Chef Tarsha. It's been a pleasure.